This week takes us to Amarillo, Texas, where a young mother is murdered after getting caught up in a toxic love triangle. This is episode 66 of Texas 1031. everyone. This is Hannah. This is Texas 1031, and this is a Texas true crime podcast. In this episode, I will be telling you all about the murder of Robin Spielbauer in Amarillo, Texas. This case was kindly suggested by our amazing true crime buff and podcast listener, Michael. Thank you again for the suggestion. You are the ultimate gem as always. On that note, I know I've mentioned this before, but in case I have it in a while, I wanted to remind you that when you message or email me with a suggested case, I always look up the case online and see if there is a decent amount of articles or information or a book or whatever out there to create an episode. If there isn't, then I usually have to pass on it. I am not ignoring your suggestions. It's just that not all cases have enough information out there for me to write an episode. Simple as that. So um, let me see here. I will tell you all now that this is the story of Robin Spielbauer. This is a story we have all unfortunately heard before, but the story still deserves to be told. This is a story of infidelity, tragic relationships, co-parenting, and how some men and women are just fucking stupid. So picture it, Amarillo, Texas, 2014. We've got a decent amount of information to cover, so I'll be kind of breezing through the timeline and events kind of fast to get to the murder, okay? So my main source for this episode is the Dateline episode that Robin's case was featured on that Michael referenced, as well as a few other articles and podcasts that have actually covered her murder. So if you want to watch that, I will leave the link in the show notes. I think the link I found was like broken up into about nine different parts, So, you know, check it out if you want. So let's get into this. Robin Bledsoe was born in Oklahoma to a military family in 1981, but would spend most of her youth and early childhood in Amarillo, Texas. In 2003, Robin would go out dancing with one of her girlfriends, Erin, who was featured in the Dateline episode, and um, they would end up spending most of the night dancing with guys, and primarily Robin would end up spending most of the evening with a man named J.D. Spielbauer. J.D., or Jeremy, which I will be referring to him as, um, because again, I don't like uh, letters for names, (laughs) um... Jeremy was, by all accounts, a good guy. He was a Marine who had served time in Iraq and Afghanistan. He was very polite, very mild-mannered, and no criminal record. So, I mean, not red flags, at least immediately. A real Southern gentleman, according to Robin and her friends. Jeremy's military service was a huge part of his personality and his identity. He admitted to kind of struggling with some PTSD and preferred to not be in loud places that were incredibly crowded and overwhelming. And after completing his military service, Jeremy made a living as a mechanic. According to Robin's friends, they believed she had honestly kind of settled when getting together with Jeremy. But despite some flaws and faults on both of their parts, Robin and Jeremy made a go of their relationship, and after two months together, Robin was pregnant and moving out of her family's home to live with Jeremy and his grandmother. I just, you know, couples like this, it's such a stereotype, and it's 
I just won't comment on it. It's just classic, good old classic country living, you know? Soon after Robin's daughter was born, she and Jeremy decided to get married. At only 22, things in Robin's life were moving incredibly fast. Unsurprisingly, not long after the couple was married, they welcomed yet another baby girl into the world. As many, you know, young families do, Robin, Jeremy, and their daughters, they were struggling in more ways than one. Both of the parents are under 30 years old. You have two kids back to back. You know, you barely even fucking know each other. This is a difficult situation for anyone to be in. They had a hard time making ends meet, and they were just, their marriage was just suffering. Robin and Jeremy's relationship status seemed to be changing day by day. And despite neither of the two being religious and in a possible attempt to save their crumbling marriage, Robin and Jeremy began attending a local church. The family wasn't just going on Sundays. They were attending upwards of three times a week. The church opened the couple up to a new community of people, and one of those people was single mother of two, Katie Phipps. Immediately, Robin and Katie bonded quickly and became close friends. And I'm sure you can already guess, Jeremy also became quite close with Katie. Can't anyone just like, I don't know, keep their legs closed, keep their dick in their pants. You know what I mean? That's just, it's a question I have. Robin stayed in denial of Jeremy and Katie's relationship for quite some time. It took Katie and Jeremy actually moving in together for her to really kind of admit to herself that her husband was having an affair with her best friend. And after being married for eight years, Robin filed for divorce and moved back into her parents' home with her two daughters. Not only did Jeremy move in with Katie and her two children, but not long after the divorce from Robin was finalized, Jeremy and Katie were married. You would think that after Jeremy cheated on Robin and Robin initiated the divorce and Jeremy got remarried, Robin would attempt to move on, but you'd be somewhat wrong. Robin couldn't let Jeremy go. That is until she met Jared. Robin thought she had finally met a good guy and was envisioning her new life with Jared and her girls. However, the fantasy came to a fatal halt on April 8th, 2014. The night before, Robin had gone out for the evening and enlisted her mother, Jackie, to babysit her two daughters for the night. But when Robin didn't come home to take her daughters to school the next morning, Jackie immediately became frustrated since she herself had to be at work by 8 a.m., But moreover, she became concerned. Jackie and her husband, Steve, began contacting Jared and some of Robin's friends to see if Robin had maybe overslept and was at one of their homes, but their hunt for Robin was fruitless. Meanwhile, around noon on April 8th, Denny Hargrove was driving on Helium Road out in Amarillo's vast farmland. One of my favorite things in this Dateline episode was... um, what the guy, the host, Josh Mankiewicz or whatever, he kept saying Helium Road like over and over and over again, which I thought was funny because I don't know what, who named that street that, I don't know. That was just something that stuck out to me. Anyway, as Denny drove his truck, remember Denny Hargrove here, okay? He drove his truck onto a curve in, on, let me say, Helium Road. He spotted three women running and shouting at him, she's dead, she's dead. As Denny looked ahead, he saw a black Chevy Tahoe pulled off in the ditch on, you guessed it, Helium Road. Next to the rear of the vehicle, he spotted a young woman lying on the ground. 
This may be morbid. <clears throat> Sorry, I'm recovering from the flu. Um, this may be morbid, but I took a screenshot on my computer from the episode showing this exact moment of the body next to the Tahoe. So you can um, check that out if you want. I'm going to put it on Instagram just for reference because I think the truth is important. Denny called 911, noting to the dispatcher that the woman wasn't breathing or moving and that she had a lot of dried blood around her body. Randall County Sheriff's Department would be in charge of the case and crime scene, and Sergeant Alan Mongold, Mongold, forensic files, would take the lead in the investigation. I love Sergeant Alan Mongold. I think he's pretty cool and kind of a hard ass. I'm into it. He, he does a good job. During his interview for, again, the Dateline episode covering Robin's case, Sergeant Mongold stated that during the initial examination of the victim's body, it was noted that she had a large blunt force, can't say that, blunt force crushing injury to the left portion of her head. He initially believed the blow to her head caused her death and that she had been lying there for at least a couple of hours. He also told Dateline that her cell phone and wallet were missing. After running the vehicle's license plate, the registered owner returned to Robin Spielbauer, and now Sergeant Mongold had the ID of his victim. Despite numerous phone calls from friends telling Jackie and Steve that Robin's black Tahoe had been found, they were, again, you know, just like Robin was with uh, Jeremy's affair, they were in complete denial that Robin had actually been injured, killed, or victimized in any way. That was until Sergeant Mongold arrived at their home. Jackie had to break the news to everyone, including her granddaughters and now ex-son-in-law, Jeremy. Upon hearing the news about Robin, Jeremy was in shock and total confusion. He came rushing over to Jackie's house to be with his children in this crazy time of need. I mean, you know, I think we all know what's happening here, though. Spoilers. I just listened back to that because I thought I, I messed something up. And I'm really sorry for how nasally I sound. Again, recovering from the flu. And I can't really hear anything anyway, so everything just sounds fucking weird. So whatever. I'm sorry, Michael, for this one. So, okay, um, back at the crime scene, the investigation was well underway. Robin's Tahoe was obviously of key interest to the investigators. Some unusual damage to one of the vehicle's windows was a main focus for the team processing the car. There were like multiple cracks and nicks. Um, they kind of appeared on the glass of that window, as well as some sort of quote undi nope can't say that unidentified hot pink polymer transfer end quote according to Sergeant Mongold. So again, watch the Dateline episode if you want to see a visual of this. But it was very obvious. It was just like flecks of this like hot pink paint or plastic. It was just like I don't know. Someone had scratched it with a crayon on the window. It was kind of weird. So with the crime scene being taken care of, uh, Sergeant Mongold began tracking down more friends and family to gather information and statements regarding Robin's murder. He started with Robin's boyfriend, Jared. Jared told Sergeant Mongold that he was working at the bar he was employed at and was there around 9, 9.30, goes home, plays video games on his Xbox until about 11.30 or midnight, and then goes to bed. Um, not the best alibi in the world, but hey, I, I literally never go out or see people. I think we've discussed this before. So if I was questioned in a murder, I'd be in the same boat as Jared. Sometimes you just have a shitty alibi and that is, you know, it is what it is. But I'm sure there's a way to see if he was like using his Xbox or something. I don't know. But regardless, Sergeant Mongold moves on and heads over to talk to Jeremy. 
He honestly has a similar alibi to Jared. Uh, He says that he was at home, had some beers, passed out, and that was really it. Kind of worse than Jared, in all honesty, but whatever. Um, However, Jeremy does pass along some new information to investigators during his interview. He tells them about a guy named Chris. He gives a vague sort of, you know, basic description of Chris, stating that Chris and Robin had dated briefly and he was a drug user or dealer and just was an all around kind of bad guy. When they speak with Jeremy's new wife, Katie, she tells police kind of the same story and mentions the same guy, Chris. Interesting, right? Why would she give a fuck? So off they go to question this Chris character, already starting to sound lame and fishy. To anyone else? Yes? Okay, good. Um, Us true crime people cannot be tricked. We see these signs from a mile away, so there's no fooling us. Surprisingly, Chris actually does exist, though, so that's kind of fun. They track him down. He says he hasn't talked with Robin in a while, and he was home all night with his mom since they lived together. He says, hey, if you want corroboration, talk to her. End of story. According to Sergeant Mongol, Jared and Chris are really low on the persons of interest at this point in Robin's murder. However, Jeremy is creeping up pretty high on the list once he gets a hold of Jeremy's phone records. Love it. We're on like step three of how to kill someone and get caught. So police are able to review Jeremy's phone calls and text messages and location, key important crucially, that part, location, (laughs) uh, on the night of Robin's murder. So... Sergeant Mongold calls Jeremy to come back to the sheriff's department to be interviewed yet again. Jeremy reiterates, God bless it, I can't speak. Jeremy reiterates to Sergeant Mongold that on the night of Robin's murder, he was at home all night drinking beer, watching TV. This time, he says, with his uncle Ty. So he has a witness semi-involved in his alibi this time around. He also makes a point to tell Sergeant Mongold that his new wife, Katie, as we've mentioned, was at a friend's house with one of her children. He said that after his uncle left, he fell asleep on the couch and woke up shortly before 10 p.m. He said he knew it was around 9.40 or 9.50 because he began texting and calling Katie and his uncle Ty because he had an uneasy feeling. Mm -hmm. You see, yes, and was checking on everyone to make sure everyone was okay. Okay, Jer, I understand. Thank you for explaining. Um, Even more bizarre is what Jeremy did next. He sent Robin a text at 10.18 p.m. saying, is everyone okay? She didn't reply and didn't answer when he followed up with his text with a phone call. Soon after his attempt to reach Robin, his wife Katie showed up at home and tow with Jeremy's uncle Ty. Uh, this is just so bizarre. He just keeps telling everyone he had an uneasy feeling or an eerie feeling, and that's why he was checking up on everyone. Again, this isn't our first rodeo. We all know the biggest motivations for murder are money, revenge, and love. What are y'all leaning towards? We'll find out. So the catch is that during Jeremy's now, I guess, second interview, Sergeant Mongold knew a lot more than he was letting on, as police usually do. He asked Jeremy, are you sure you didn't have any plans to meet up with Robin the night she was killed? And Jeremy answers, no, no plans. And Sergeant Mongold hits him with, quote, well, then how do you explain these text messages? Let me read them to you in case your memory is failing you, end quote. According to the text message history, Robin and Jeremy had very clear-cut plans to meet up and hang out that night. 
The very last text sent from Robin's phone was her saying, yep, in response to Jeremy messaging her asking if she was ready. The very last activity on her phone, which is now missing, remember, was between she and her ex-husband, Jeremy, who is now caught in a big fat fucking lie. No one saw this coming, right? The husband never does it, ever. It's always a stranger. This is nuts. Obviously kidding. Jeremy backtracks a little. Okay. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I changed my mind. I, we, I knew we actually did have plans to meet up at my house to talk about our kids. And, you know, honestly, that's why I wanted my uncle there to make sure if Katie came home, he could be a witness that nothing scandalous was occurring. You know what I mean? That That's a good that's a good plan. Let me change my story, right? Detective Mongold isn't buying this at all. You know, these these times aren't adding up and neither is really anyone's story at this point besides Jared's. So Detective Mongold straight up asked Jeremy if he killed Robin and he said he hadn't. Investigators realized that at the end of the day, Jeremy really didn't have much of a motive to kill Robin, so, you know, they were divorced and they both had moved on. They were co-parenting well. So what was the real motive there? So investigators decided to look elsewhere. Next, police brought in Katie Spielbauer. She shows up to her interview, y'all, in um, her pink camo shirt and her pink hair ribbon. Pink is obviously a favorite color of Katie's. Wouldn't you agree? Um during this interview, Katie gets hit with the same hammer as Jeremy regarding her text messages. Essentially, Katie has been hounding Jeremy and Robin, accusing them of seeing one another and having an affair behind her back and trying to destroy her marriage. The literal definition of irony. So uh, within the four days leading up to Robin's murder, get this, you guys, Katie had sent Jeremy over 300 text messages about Robin and threats of violence. You got two kids? Who has the time? You know? Oh, my God. Unfortunately, all Katie had an alibi for the night of Robin's murder. She was with her son until about 10 p.m. at her friend's house, which Jeremy also had mentioned in his first or second interview. I can't remember. I can't keep up. And arrived home around 10.20 when Jeremy and his uncle claimed they saw her. While Katie's interview was ongoing, Robin's autopsy was taking place. The medical examiner determined that along with blunt force trauma to Robin's head, she had suffered a 22 caliber gunshot to her head as well. With a search warrant in hand, investigators began to scour Jeremy and Katie's home attempting to locate the 22 in question. Police seized several firearms in the house, but one in particular became the prime focus. A busted up 22 caliber Sig Sauer pistol with, you guessed it, a hot pink frame. This revelation spawned a much deeper dive into Katie and her story. Subsequently, investigators were able to locate photos on Katie's Facebook page of herself at a gun range with the pink 22 just days before the murder of Robin took place. Katie removed them from her page not long after Robin's death. As police continued to dig into Katie's versions of events and her alibi, they were finally able to interview Savannah, the friend that Katie used as her alibi. So Savannah and Katie's stories were adding up and everything seemed to be accurate, minus one detail. Savannah told police Katie left around 9.50 rather than 10 o'clock like Katie had told Detective Mongold. 
Investigators and the district attorney believed that this 10-minute gap in time could make all the difference in the turn of events. So let's do an evidence recap here, okay? Katie has a, I would say, a semi-stable alibi. We have her pink handgun, her general motive to get rid of Robin, and newly found cell phone tower data and pings placing Katie near the crime scene. So you have the text messages of threats and violence and hating Robin's possible affair. And then now they uncover cell phone tower data placing Katie near the crime scene, like I just said. So with all of this, just four days after Robin was killed, Katie Spielbauer was arrested for the murder of her once best friend, Robin Spielbauer, on April 11th, 2014. While the district attorney and investigators continued on in making their case, Katie, unable to make bail, sat in jail pointing the finger at her husband, Jeremy, for the murder of Robin. With his ex-wife dead and his current wife arrested, Jeremy decides now is a good time to tell investigators some new information that he casually left out in his first several interviews. He now claims Katie didn't arrive home at 10.20 like he said before. No, 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 no. She arrived home a little after nine, picking a fight with him about Robin. He said to Detective Mongold, quote, I just said to hell with it. I'm not going to have a fight with her. And I went into my room and passed out. When I woke up, she was gone and she had taken my truck. End quote. Uh, sigh. Uh, I hate these people so fucking much. Again, I appreciate the suggestion, Michael, but these people are so fucking annoying. <laughs> Wouldn't you agree? So this is when Jeremy claims he began texting everyone and asking if everyone was okay, that whole thing, and saying, you know, he had this really bad feeling, et cetera, et cetera, like I mentioned before. He also tells Detective Mongold in this now third interview or whatever that he really wasn't supposed to meet up with Robin at his house like he had said before, but rather they were supposed to meet out on, you guessed it, motherfucking Helium Road, the road where she was found killed. Crazy how these things just add up, Jeremy. Mm. So Detective Mongol, during this interview, he kind of gets real with Jeremy and he was like, look, this is kind of my working theory. He was like, I, I think that, you know, you and Robin did go to meet up and Katie caught the two of you out there and she shot Robin because she was so pissed. And Jeremy kind of hesitates in corroborating these events that Detective Mongold put forward. I mean, he he really hesitates. He hesitates for over a fucking week. Okay. But he finally comes back to do his, what is it, 800th interview at this point and tells Detective Mongold what really happened. Air quotes, really. Jeremy explains that he did go and meet Robin out on Helium Road. However, it wasn't sexual. The two sat in the back seat of Robin's SUV discussing their daughter's STARS exams coming up. These are like, I don't know, I think I took them in school too. They're like standardized learning equivalency tests or something in Texas schools. So Jeremy then says that he sees headlights shining behind them. And this is kind of a country road. Again, watch the Dateline episode. You can kind of see where this is at. It's not around anything. It's around electrical towers. Like it's, it's pretty rural, which is why that spot was probably chosen in the first place. So um, he sees headlights shining behind them. And soon after that, he hears someone knocking on the window. The person was knocking with something harder than a fist is what he claimed. 
Jeremy said he opened the door and it's Katie standing outside of the car. He says Katie and Robin began to argue and he has to tell Katie, hey, look, this isn't what it looks like. We're just talking about the girls and their school stuff. Nothing happened. Let's just leave and go home. He said he left and walked back to his truck, assuming Katie would be following him back to her car and leaving as well. Right. You know, this is, again, what he claims supposedly happened. This is also when he claims that he sends the, is everyone okay text. He keeps trying to make the story fit with these text messages and with only Katie replying, yep, and Robin not responding. So that sounds like it works, right? Mm-hmm, me too. So that is his new story, what have you, his 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 turn of events. Um, so yeah, Katie's in jail. She is awaiting trial. He never visits her. Jeremy never visits her. And he files for divorce. And that's the end of the episode, you guys. She's awaiting trial. No, I'm just kidding. Um, this is not where their story ends, okay? So after spending, get this, 467 days in jail, okay? Prosecutor James Farron tells Katie that he can prove she wasn't near Helium Road the night Robin was murdered. Wi-Fi and location data taken from Katie's son's phone showed that Katie had never even taken any route near Helium Road and her alibi was airtight. And with that, now returning to her maiden name, Katie Phipps was a free fucking woman. Realizing his rush to judgment and arrest with Katie ended poorly, D.A. Farron took his time after her release in finding the true culprit in Robin's murder. He waited nine more months to make a move. D.A. Farron could have taken longer, in fact, but when Jackie, Robin's mother, called to tell him that Jeremy had contacted her for money to take a trip to New York for the weekend, everyone began to put the pieces together. They believed Jeremy was attempting to cross the Canadian border, and with that, Jeremy Spielbauer was arrested for the murder of his ex-wife, Robin. D.A. Farron believed that when Jeremy and Robin met up that night on, what is it, Helium Road, Robin had told him that she was moving on to have a life with Jared, and she wanted full child support. D.A. Farron also believed that Jeremy used Katie's gun to frame her for Robin's death so he could get rid of both wives and claim custody of his daughters and really never look fucking back. The trial for the murder of Robin Spielbauer was a relatively simple one. Throw in some cell phone tower statistics and Wi-Fi tracking, and that was the majority of the state's case. They knew that only two people could have killed Robin, and they knew that they could prove that Katie wasn't Robin's murderer. In addition, they had Jeremy's ever-changing story and the four different versions of events he told law enforcement during his interviews— all of which were shown to the jury, emphasizing his inconsistent narrative and highlighting his motive and opportunity. Additionally, and I really am not surprised by this, but Jeremy full on lied about his military career and being a Marine. So what a fucking loser. I, this is my question is like, how do guys get women to believe them and have sex with them and start families and lives with them? Like girls, get it together. These men are absolute trash. If you get the chance, don't. Please save us all. Jeremy's defense. And actually, you know what? I'm going to take that back. It wasn't her fault. He's a piece of shit. So scratch, scratch my opinion of any of those girls, Katie or Robin. Fuck that Jeremy guy. So this is good. Jeremy's defense was essentially uh, Jeremy isn't smart enough to pull this off. You know, I love 
I love that poor, poor helpless, you know, defendant, right? He's so stupid. Despite this insult, his attorneys actually kind of make a decent point when they said, you know, how could he frame Katie if he didn't know where she was or if she could actually alibi herself? How could he make it look like Katie killed Robin without knowing or doing more behind the scenes, an act of which she is too stupid to do? Um, I can kind of see that, but I'm still not 100% buying it. But I, I see the defense there, I guess. Jeremy does an interview with Dateline over the phone, and I hate it. Oh, I hate it when hosts ask suspects, did you kill so-and-so? Like, what do you think they're going to say? You know? Oh, yeah, they'll tell me for sure. Like, so fucking dumb. Anyway, go away with those questions. It's so cliche and cringe. Ask something deeper and more interesting, please. Anyways, Jeremy gives his version of events yet again. You know, he claims Katie finds them out in Robin's car talking in the back seat, and she begins to bash in the window with the gun, the pink gun that was hers. And that w- that's what left the marks on the window, etc. And she was the last one to see Robin alive because, again, according to Jeremy, he left in his truck and Robin stayed behind. Tell me this, Jeremy. Why would you leave your ex-wife in the presence of your current wife who just caught y'all in the ex-wife's car and she has a gun and she is banging on the car window with said gun, huh? This is what the host of Dateline should have asked instead of if you fucking killed her. Why would you leave and think that that is okay and just fine? Also, why would you think that that is even a believable fucking situation? I'd say that you're either the dumbest person or the worst liar that we have ever covered, but I think you just might be both. Congratulations. This guy is so unbelievably stupid, like so frustrating. My God, get better at committing crimes, people. The biggest thing was, you know, if law enforcement and a judge and a district attorney did think Katie was the main suspect enough to arrest her and have her jailed for over a fucking year, then that is some decent, reasonable doubt for Jeremy's defense going into trial. So, I mean, he did have that on his side for sure. Um, However, it took the jury, y'all, only three hours to return a guilty verdict, sentencing Jeremy to life in prison. He is currently at the All Red Unit and is eligible for parole in 2046. So a big fuck you, Jeremy. Katie Phipps is in college working at a law firm hoping to attend law school. She is also busy spending time with her children, living the single life. I'm sure she um, is hesitant to get married again. And of course, let's not forget the ultimate victim in this story, Robin. Robin will be eternally missed. She was an incredible mother, friend, and daughter who, unfortunately, under no fault of her own, fell in love with a fucking dumbass who manipulated her, cheated on her, and murdered her. And to quote the host of this Dateline episode, Josh Mankiewicz, being alone is better than being with the wrong guy. So that is the murder of Robin Spielbauer. Let's do a super quick questions and theories, okay? Number one. If it was just Jeremy and Katie wasn't involved, how did this go down? Because I don't really like his version of events. I think that they're not the full truth. I don't think that the episode really depicted um, what law enforcement's real version of it or the DA's version of it. Like the court proceedings weren't highlighted too much in anything that I read or watched. So let's let's make our own fucking assumptions here, okay? (laughs) I think there really is only one way this could have taken place. And it's not the way that Jeremy thinks. I think that Jeremy makes plans with Robin to meet up on Helium Road. He purposefully 
brings the gun with him because he is planning on killing Robin and framing Katie because this whole affair and marriage scandal has gotten out of control. So say they talk in the backseat or do whatever in the backseat. When they both get out, Jeremy shoots her, hits her on the head or vice versa, whatever order you want to believe. He then would have to bang on the window of the Tahoe after the fact to make it look like Katie was trying to break into the car and scare them. He purposefully leaves behind the shell casing for law enforcement to find, and he leaves in his truck. The only other narrative could really be that he followed her to Helium Road somehow, made her pull over into the ditch, banged on her window with the gun, and forced her to get out and shot her and left. That's really the only two options I think could happen, but because according to text messages and the history there on the phones, it seemed like she was consenting to meet up with him to discuss whatever, do whatever, however you want to think that they were spending their evening together. So I think the former is what happened. So question number one, I would say maybe gently leads me into my last question, question number two. And I don't really take too much um, stock into this theory that I I'm, I'm putting out there, but what if like Katie and Jeremy could have planned this together and Katie was actually involved somehow and Jeremy simply was the one who in the end got the conviction and sentencing. I don't know. I think that they both had enough motive to want Robin out of their lives that they both could have been capable of it. But I don't know. I think that has some working. It's a working theory. Let's just put it that way. But I still think my question number one is really, or my statement or theory number one is really more so my thoughts on the case. So anyway, let me know what you think. Email me or message me on social media. I am rarely active on Facebook, if ever. That was more Cassie's domain. But message me on Instagram. That works better. I am reading a very thick book right now, trying to write a script for a case. So I will be back at some point with more Texas True Crime. And if anyone is listening, happy Halloween. <laughs>